and welcome to The Pulse, a podcast dedicated to examining the business side of healthcare. I'm Lori Cox, and on today's episode, we are going to discuss the very hot topic of the 2023 EM guideline changes, which I know everybody is just really super excited about. Um, you can define excited however you would like to on that. Uh, but I brought on one of my really good friends, Lee Williams. Um, Lee and I have been friends for years. We were on the National Advisory Board together. Then we became National Advisory Board officers together. And now we both work for AAPC. So welcome, Lee. Thank you Yay. for joining us. Yay. Hey, Lori. I was just thinking, how much trouble can we get into today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good question. <laughs> no, very happy to join you today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, let's see, probably sometime in August of 2022, uh, my friend Stephanie Scott and I, we did a webinar on the 2023 guidelines. For you listeners, you can find that on our website. It's aapc.com slash business. Um, But we had a lot of questions as usual. I mean, Lee, every time we do webinars, you know, Q&A is just lit up, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we thought we'd sit down and take some of the questions that we saw that were repetitive over and over and over. And Lee and I could just kind of sit and talk about those with you all today. Um, So we'll dive right in. My first one, (laughs) this had to be one of my favorite questions from the whole thing said, does this mean that we will no longer use the 95 and 97 guidelines for any service? We can burn those. And I was like, burn, <laughs> burn baby, burn. <laughs> that is funny. Um, but no, <laughs> I don't think we want to burn them as you know, there may be occasion, right, where one has to go back and perform an audit. Mm-hmm. And if you are auditing a previous year, then you may need those guidelines to make sure you're applying mm-hmm. the correct guidelines to that um, that data service. But um, going forward, which I guess is really what the, the question is about <laughs> is, you know, once we're into 2023, then the wonderful thing about this is we will have one set of guidelines and we will no longer have to toggle between mm-hmm. the 21, the 95, 97, and then 2023. So absolutely, it's wonderful knowing that I think our lives will be a little easier with one set of guidelines, <laughs> <laughs> but, but don't burn the old ones just right. yet. <laughs> right, exactly. <clears throat> but it's good to know that as we go forward, we don't have to worry about counting the bullet points and what's oh, the yeah. difference between a detailed and an expanded problem-focused exam, right? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I think we I'm, can all appreciate that. Um, yeah. And it's been a long time coming. I think we all agree with that as well because, I mean, again, we've been using these since 1995 and they yeah. are honestly outdated in 1997, which is why <laughs> they came up in 97. And now then it was just... Everything went downhill from there, I think. Right, oh. right. Yeah, the confusion that we, you know, have all been um, exposed to over decades, just, you know, not being able to get everyone on the same page because it was just difficult to do, right? So, yes. again, the the I know that's the goal of the AMA is to just get everyone, you know, more aligned and thinking um, on this, along the same line. So, hopefully, with this new set of guidelines, we'll, we'll definitely get there. 
still be some challenges, you know, but but we'll see that when we get to 21, you know, right. Absolutely. We all were, and we're still finding things like today. I was looking at something thinking, I don't really know if this falls in the low or moderate risk category. (laughs) Right. So we're still learning from that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the other questions that came in had to do with consultations. Um, Will consultations still require history exam and NBM? And I think the short answer there is no. Yeah, um, it is going to be pretty much structured throughout the E&M services, right? So just like with our office and other outpatient setting where we're focusing on the MDM or time for code reporting purposes, um, the same will hold you for consultation. Now, I, I know, Lori, we, we, t- we always want to remind folks that you do want to still capture the medically appropriate history right. and exam, you know, for that patient um, for medical legal reasons and just, you know, good quality care. But for code reporting purposes, it's just the MDM or time. Right. I'm glad you said that because I don't know how many um, coders and auditors and physicians I've had that have said, well, we don't have to have that anymore. And I'm like, yes, you do. (laughs) It's still a legal document. And if God forbid you have to go to court for that, um, you're going to make sure that that's there. And like you said, it's just good care if a patient's transferring from one doctor to another, they need that history and exam. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so another question that come in and we got a couple of these actually, and it has to do with the place of service. So since the observation codes are kind of going away, are we still going to have place of service 21 and 22? And as far as I know, we are, is that what you're seeing too? Yeah, I know that is a question that I've seen um, on different boards, just different forums and, and webinars, even with the um, when the AMA did theirs um, a few weeks ago, I think, or a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a question that was posed there. And uh, yeah, like you, I haven't seen anything to say that it's going away. I think we're hoping to see something from CMS maybe in the final rule or reference somewhere that's going to, you know, definitively answer that question. But as of today, like you, I I haven't seen anything saying that one is going away or we're going to replace one with the other. That's what I've heard too. So that's, at least we know that as far as going forward, we're still going to use the place of services just like we have in the past, unless we hear differently from the AMA or CMS. And I think we would have released something by now on it, hopefully. Maybe that's a change for a future year. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, We did have a lot of questions surrounding the ED because, um, well, there was a couple of questions and one was on time. And so we need to remind everybody we never have done ED services on time and we still will not just because it's really not applicable in the ED. But one of the questions that came in was, what are your thoughts on billing 99281 by the physician if the physician doesn't see the patient? Would that only be appropriate if the physician and facility staff were employed by the same employer? What what were your thoughts on that one? So I know this is one that I guess the question has been asked because the the criterion has changed, right? So now the physician doesn't have to see the patient in order to build a 99281. So ideally, you know, the the nurse can treat the patient and be able to bill 
um, under the, the, you know, the supervision of the physician. The physician doesn't have to be actively um, involved in the care as far as physically seeing the patient. And I don't know, Lori, for me, that, that kind of makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, if the patient is treated in the ED and the work effort is only equal to a level one ED service, mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say the presenting problem or the severity of illness would be really low. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, why not have the patient be seen by the nurse mm-hmm. and free up some of that physician time so that they can treat a patient who is more severe? Yeah, um, I agree. So, so, you know, in, in my mind, that that does make sense. I don't necessarily have an issue with this change. Mm-hmm. I think from what I've heard, some of the concern is, well, how do we then address the facility fee um, and the nurse work that goes into that. And uh, perhaps that's just a whole other um, topic or area of discussion. Um, But I don't necessarily see an issue with this change. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, anyway, it's a welcome change because, again, it it gives the physician more time to see other patients that need that higher level of of care, you know. Yeah. So, and then as far as, I think the second part of that question was the physician and staff relationship as far as employment. Um, I I don't know if there is a requirement that both the physician and the facility staff be employed by the same facility in order to build that code. I would say, or I would think that that's not a mandate since I haven't seen it anywhere yet anyway. (laughs) Um, So we'll see what's coming down the pipeline from CMS. But as of today, um, I don't know if you've seen anything, but I haven't seen anything that says they have to be employed by the same um, hospital group. I haven't seen that either. Um, In my opinion, if the nurse is probably employed by the hospital, ED providers typically are, but sometimes they can have, you know, their own company that sends them and it's still going to be, I I still feel like it'd be billed the same way, no matter. matter. Yeah, I do too. It it will just make sense. Yeah. And so speaking about the facility, I have not, I haven't seen anything on the changes for the facility. I mean, there are really no like the 2023 guidelines and the leveling of services, we don't have that on the facility side necessarily. There are mm-hmm. some criteria out there. I know a lot of our AAPC services clients kind of create their own, especially in the ED. Have you seen anything that you know of that's changing on the ED? No, facility? no, I haven't. And you're absolutely right, right? That task usually falls with the facility to create their own guidelines. Um, so here again, I haven't seen anything either, but but I, I was actually expecting to see something at some point, maybe even <laughs> right. if it's not this year, right. um, <laughs> you know, just to see how, um, how that's going to come about or what changes are going to be needed, if any, um, because we're looking at a facility fee that's done by the hospital staff. And now we're saying that level one service that's, you know, historically has been a physician code can now be billed by the hospital staff as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get some new guidance down the line, but Mm -hmm. I would not be surprised if we don't either. Right. right? So um, yeah, yeah. It's just a wait and see situation. But again, going back to the root of the question, um, I personally think it's, it's a, it's not a bad idea to free up the physicians so that they can treat the more complex patients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, a lot of the other questions that we got <clears throat> have to deal with time, and this is time for all of the categories of EM services. Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion, and I think a lot of the physicians, at least from the audits that I've done, they don't understand or they're not being educated on the new time guidelines, mm -hmm. that it's not just the face-to-face. -face. I still feel like physicians, if they're doing time, they're just considering that face-to-face -face time and they're not taking into account the fact that it's charting and ordering right. and all of that. Um, so we had a lot of questions on time. And so the one was need clarification on counting time. So when the doctor spends time documenting the visit, is he, she allowed to count that time towards total time? And the answer is yes, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think when we first approached these changes, going back to 2021, um, one thing the AMA did stress upon was just the time that the providers spend in that encounter. Like you stated, not necessarily that face-to-face -face time with the patient, but all the other work that's involved in taking care of the patient, mm -hmm. um, documenting your notes, um, speaking with other um, providers, reviewing medical records, that can all take place outside of the patient face-to-face -face encounter, but it's still work pertaining to that patient. Um, the only caveat is it has to be on that encounter date, right? Yeah, right. So we, we definitely want to keep that in mind, but absolutely all the work. And I think the um, CPT, we have a good description on all the activities mm -hmm. that can support time-based billing. So, and physicians need to be aware of that and facilities need to make sure that whoever is educating their providers are um, educating them correctly on all the work that they do, how they are appropriately um, compensated for that work. Mm -hmm. I agree because I, again, I feel like a lot of the providers, especially when they're newer, <clears throat> when it's a newer patient that they're seeing. And so they're spending a lot more time, right? Getting to know their chart and the patient. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're shortchanging themselves. Um, so I don't know. I think time is going to be something we're going to continue to see. We get a lot of questions. Well, I don't look at my watch when I walk in the room, you know, <laughs> yeah. to see the patient. There is a lot of EMR systems out there, though, that are tracking time mm -hmm. or helping doctors track time. So that might be something. Um, it's. I think we're going to see more as we go um, into 23 on time. Yeah, I would agree. And, and another point, Laurie, I would think is, and speaking about physicians and them just maybe perhaps not knowing, but on the flip side of that, historically, a lot of the work we're saying that they can get credit for today, they couldn't, right? right. I mean, right. you couldn't get credit for documenting the encounter notes um, <laughs> in the office setting anyway, right? right. So and now they are, and yeah. they're using it, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's funny how that that. But, you know, it takes time to transition. It takes time to change behavior and all of that stuff. So, um, so yeah, but I, I agree with you. That is something that we probably will be talking about for a while. And um, definitely organizations need to find a way to make sure that they're educating correctly and um, use us, you know, as a yeah. resource to make right. sure yeah. that you're getting the right information out there. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get on to part two of today's episode. How are you safeguarding against errors that put your organization at risk? 
At AAPC Services, we leverage our deep expertise in over 80 medical specialties. We create tailored solutions that drive accuracy, profitability, and peace of mind for healthcare organizations of every size. And when it comes to the accuracy you depend on, we leave nothing to chance. Your project will undergo our multi-tier quality review process, ensuring you meet your goals and we maintain our enterprise-wide 98% accuracy rate. Learn more at aapc.com business. Welcome back to The Pulse. Uh, so we've been talking about the 2023 E&M guidelines. Um, one question that has come up a bunch, and this actually came around in 21, had to do with critical care. So if anybody really dived into the final rule in 21, um, they saw something a little funky in there that had to do with the critical care times. <laughs> and it was kind of hidden, wasn't really um, clarified. And I think, Lee, you or someone had reached out to one of the MACs and they also were confused. And yeah. They seemed like yeah. they really understood. But what we're, uh, what we're kind of thinking is that CMS is saying, basically, it has to do with the same thing they do with prolonged care. So CMS mm-hmm. has their own prolonged guidelines. And it seems like they're going to be doing that with critical care as well, where you have to add on the entire 30 minutes. It's not just the one minute past the uh, 74 yeah. minutes. Yeah. yeah. So I did want to talk about that a little bit because I, I'm curious. Now, remember, we've only got the proposed rule. We're waiting <laughs> for the final rule. Um, hopefully, October, November-ish would be, mm-hmm. <laughs> would be mm-hmm. great. That's yeah, not about it. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't wait till December 31st. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) Yeah. But it does look like those critical care times are going to be changing, at least from what we're seeing. So we're curious to see where that. Yeah. um, Like you said, that that is definitely the proposal, right? And and that's a big change. So um, requiring the full... Um, quantity of time in order to report the code. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I now that you mentioned this, I did kind of um, jog my memory some. And there were questions about um, when you have multiple providers in the same um, yes. group, right, performing the service. And mm-hmm. yes, you can add it all together, but you still have to be very cautious of that time requirement as far as the full code um, time descriptor. So this is definitely something to to watch, to see um, what the final rule is going to be. And even more importantly, Lori, it, it's, and I'm sure you and your audit service team spend a lot of time educating um, organizations and physicians about just the differences between CPT and CMS and just being very cautious in how you are going to apply some of those rules and guidelines. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And it's confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, We could all just get on the same page (laughs) when it comes to that because basically it's a time component and I I get CMS doesn't feel like the AMA is doing it right or whatever the case may be there. It's very hard to sit down and tell your doctors. And and I always tell the providers that I educate, you know, I, I realize you didn't go to medical school to learn how to 
code by code, time. Yeah. <laughs> so let your certified coders do it, right? Let them right. be the ones to handle that. Or your EMR, if at all possible, let your EMR system figure that out um, because they shouldn't have to know all those different guidelines. But unfortunately, Absolutely. it means that us as coders and auditors, we we have to keep up on them. Yep. Unfortunately or fortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> yeah but it is, you're right. It, it is a lot for a, a clinician. Um, they want to treat their patients and provide the best quality of care. And that's what they should be doing. So having to remember all of these rules, which it's impossible to remember all the it rules. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big ask. So you're absolutely right. Using your coders, your audit teams, and implementing those tools in your EMR, like you said, and having those additional resources to help the physicians is very important. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, we had a lot of questions on, on time, as I mentioned earlier. Another question that came in was, if a provider rounds more than one time in a 24-hour period and can add the time together for those multiple visits, or even a family meeting, can that increase the code and prolong? And absolutely, it's just that it has to all be on the same calendar date, mm -hmm. right? That's what we are looking at is to make sure that it's all on the same calendar date. Right. So that's where it gets tricky because they're saying a 24-hour period. Well, yes and no, right? Because yeah. it has to be per date. So you have to take your time for day one and then your mm -hmm. time for day two calendar-wise, not the 24-hour to 24-hour period. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it could increase um, if they spend a lot of time, if it's an ICU situation mm -hmm. where maybe they're not doing critical care necessarily, but they're in and out and their staff is in and out, you know, thinking of split shared too along those yeah. lines. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't even want to talk about you that. You don't even want to talk about that, I know. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the bottom line is it all comes down to medical necessity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yes. So if there is medical necessity to support all that time that's being required, and then the second piece to that would be documentation. Um, so did you document what was the reason for having to allocate all that time? So right. it's not uncommon in a hospital setting to um, to be able to spend a lot of time. The requirement is to spend a lot of time dealing with the patient. Again, doesn't necessarily have to be face to face is all the other things that come along with it mm -hmm. um, while the patient is while the provider is rounding. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, there is potential to to bill out a. a a good amount of time and apply prolonged service mm -hmm. once all the other criteria requirements that we just talked about is met and considered. Right. Um, and then, so the next question that comes in on time is probably the one that I could spend hours and hours talking about, but it has to do with modifier 25, basically. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's one of my favorite, <laughs> and I like air quoting favorite <laughs> topics to talk about. Um, but they're saying, should providers be documenting the time spent separate on a significantly separately identifiable E&M from an injection performed in the office? And the short answer to that is absolutely, because we need to know that the time that they spent on the E&M service did not include time for any separately reportable procedures, no matter what that procedure may be, right? Right. <laughs> Especially if you're billing the E&M by time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. My 25 is one of my favorites, too. And I think that's another reason why we get along so well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We just love those those problematic situations. (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. You want to carve out the time um, to that you dedicate towards the procedure and make sure you're not considering that time in the E&M code. Absolutely. Yeah. And also keeping in mind that that E&M must be, you must have a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Not just that they came in for the injection. Um, you spent five minutes talking to them about the injection and the breasts right. and, and et cetera. Right. Uh, that would all be included in the injection itself and mm-hmm. maybe not have a separately identified, but yeah, like I said, we could go on about that modifier forever. Maybe that's a future podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. Um, we had a couple of people ask us, what would the ideal time statement be? And they're saying that often we see something along the lines of 45 minutes spent with patient today. So, I mean, that's okay. And it's also not, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'd want to see more. Yeah. I mean, I, I granted if that's not the only statement in the note, right? We, we do have. <laughs> yeah, we do have a medically appropriate history and exam. Um, we do have orders, perhaps medication management on that day. We do have other information that is supportive of that time. Um mm-hmm. I I think the important thing is the documentation should, of course, include the time spent, but it should also include what the time was spent doing. Um, So, you know, we don't have to write a paragraph about um, what you did um, if what you did is representative in the note. Um, if it's not representative in a note, if you spent time, what's a good example, Lori? Let's say counseling, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You spent time counseling the patient. Then it, it makes sense that your note should say 45 minutes spent counseling the patient on A, B, C, D. You know, what did that entail? Um, so I don't know if there's necessarily an ideal time statement. Um, I think what you want to have is the time spent on the encounter and what that time was spent doing. That is really what you're looking for. I agree. I like them putting in there what the time, especially if they did something that they're reporting, like reviewing radiology reports Mm -hmm. or something when they're billing for that CPT. I feel like it's important to say, you know, at least say this did not include any separately reportable procedures. Um, Absolutely. But you're right. There isn't or nor have we really seen any time statements that have been, you know, mandated for sure. And they wouldn't do that anyway. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to see what some of the Macs and payers will come up as time goes by. Right. Because they'll come up with something, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think providers like, I mean, in an effort to save time, we, you know, we all want to reduce the amount of clicks that they have in the EMR yes. and they kind of like to just click something and falls in a note and they're done. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to be very careful with that, right? Because again, the documentation has to support what you're billing out. And if it's too vague or if it's a can statement that's used on every single encounter, you spend 45 minutes on every single patient you saw that day, you know, those are just red flags. Um, So you just want to be very cautious with things like that. I agree. 
So the final question that we're going to talk about today, um, and we got this in several different ways, shapes, and forms, so I kind of reformatted it into a simpler question, <laughs> but a lot of auditors and coders and practice managers and compliance officers, they all want to know, what is the best way to educate our providers on these changes? So what were your kind of thoughts on that? I, you know, <laughs> that's a bit of a loaded question to me. I, <laughs> that's why I handed it over to you. Yeah, and I, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I just don't know if there's a one size fits all approach, you know? I, um, I think you really have to look at it from your organization standpoint mm -hmm. and how training is delivered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something like the ENM, this ENM change is, is huge. Mm -hmm. um, the impact is huge. So, in my opinion, Training should be mandatory for providers. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, for a change such as this, I would like to see some type of um, in-person or live training where there is a, a live um, trainer or instructor. Um, I know every organization isn't set up to accommodate that type of um training delivery style. Right, so you right. may have to do something that's more self-paced perhaps, mm -hmm. or a webinar where a provider can just log in and view the um, recording or view the presentation. Um, my only thing with that is if you do go that route, I think that it needs to include um, an assessment because you want to make sure that the information that you're presenting was well-received mm -hmm. and it was communicated in a way that was effective and the providers understood what the changes are and what their expectations are. Yeah. Um, but I really think it's just going to depend on your organization, what is the, the, the culture of that organization, mm -hmm. how many providers are we talking about, you know, are you doing internal, external training, um, so I know you guys on the audit side, you've done a lot of training as we have on the content side. Um, so I don't know what you would want to add here, Lori, but right. I, I just, I don't have a, a one, you know, just one answer yeah. that's probably going to please everyone. I completely mm -hmm. agree. And that was my initial thought too. It's really going to depend on your organization and how have you done training in the past? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have providers that don't mind sitting on a lunch Zoom, maybe, and maybe do a couple of them, you know, um, record them or have them right. be present in some way. And then you'll have other providers that they just do better if somebody is standing in front of them, um, showing them their notes and saying, right. here's yeah. what level of service this note is, and just here's what it's going to be in 2023, and we've done yep. that on our side. We've done a lot of comparison audits like that. So mm -hmm. that was really helpful too. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about the changes. Um, again, excited and a little fearful, but <laughs> <laughs> I what I'm so glad is for things like this and everything that AAPC does, um, you know, both from the content and the audit side, that we can really help all of these auditors and coders and physicians. Um, try to get the best knowledge out there. And at the end of the day, like you said earlier, it's it's about helping the patient at the end of the day, even from our business side. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely will reiterate everything that you just said. And and it's, it's great to be a part of an organization that has the resources needed to help us do our job well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely something I think we can definitely all appreciate so very much. Well, well, thank you so much for 
being on here with me today. This was fun. I hope um, our attendees, our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. We are planning on doing a lot more podcasts. So um, make sure that you get out there and look for those to be coming soon. Um, Lee, I had fun today. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great time and I I don't think we got into too much trouble. So hopefully they'll have (laughs) us back. Well, maybe next time. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of The Pulse. At AAPC Services, we help healthcare organizations like yours maximize efficiency, mitigate risk, and prevent revenue loss. Our credentialed experts provide services for insurance audit appeals, coding and billing accuracy, accounts receivable audits, corporate integrity audits, and much more. Find out how we can help your organization overcome challenges and meet its goals. Learn more at aapc.com business.